Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. And he went, at, he went out from thence and came into his own country, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath day was come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many hearing him were astonished, saying, From whence hath this man these things? And what wisdom is this which is given unto him, that even such mighty works are wrought by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and of Judah and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, but in his own country, and among his own kin, and in his own house. And he could there do no mighty work, save that he laid his hands upon a few sick folk and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went round about the villages teaching. And he called unto him the twelve, and began to send them forth two by two, and gave them power over unclean spirits, and commanded them that they should take nothing for their journey, save a staff only, no scrip, no bread, no money in their purse, but be shod with sandals, and not put on two coats. And he said unto them, In what place soever ye enter into a house, there abide till ye depart from that place. And whosoever shall not receive you, nor hear you, when ye depart thence, shake off the dust under your feet for a testimony against them. Verily I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. And they went out and preached that men should repent, and they cast out many devils and anointed with oil many that were sick and healed them. Jesus, at this point in scripture, has traveled throughout Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, preaching salvation, preaching grace, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and calling upon men to repent. He demonstrated his divine power over demons back in chapter 5 when he cast the legion of demons out of the man in the land of the Gadarenes. He demonstrated his power over disease when he healed the woman with the issue of blood, when he raised Jairus' daughter, when he performed the healings that he performed. He showed his power over disease. When the lame walked, he showed his power over disability. He's got power over all of it. Yes. He demonstrated his divine power. Also demonstrated his authority. And he taught of the coming kingdom. That the kingdom of God was nigh, that the kingdom of God was near, that it was time to prepare to enter into God's kingdom. Mm -hmm. And so he called the people to repentance. By Mark chapter 6, Jesus has a following. There is a multitude that met him on the shore of Capernaum when Jairus came to him and, and begged him to heal his daughter. There are people who are following Jesus. He has disciples. He also has his apostles. There are crowds. People know that they can go to Jesus for healing. Hence, Jairus came to him. Hence, the woman with the issue of blood. They know he's got divine power. They go to him for healing. They go to him for deliverance. They go to him for salvation. Yet when Jesus returns to his hometown of Nazareth, people scoff at him. Why? Well, they had seen Jesus grow up. And they felt it inconceivable that this little kid they saw run through their village could be the Messiah. 
That can't be. Don't you know who his parents are? Hey, even one of the disciples in John chapter 1 said, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? You ain't nothing special. You're just one of us. You ain't no better than us. You're just one of the guys from the neighborhood. Their response to Jesus is telling. They say, Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and of Judah and of Simon? They say, From whence hath this man these things? You know what they're saying? They're saying, Who does he think he is? Yes. <laughs> you know, we, 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 we tend to think that people root for the hometown hero, but they don't. When the hometown kid goes on American Idol, we're happy that our hometown is being mentioned on TV, but we're also expecting him to fall. He ain't going to make it all the way. I know him. And if they knew who I know, that's how we think about people. The response of the people of Nazareth to Jesus, who do you think you are? Where did you get this wisdom? You're just a carpenter. You didn't go to seminary. Following his rejection at Nazareth, Jesus sends his disciples out two by two to preach the gospel. See, I think I know what happened at Nazareth. I think Jesus was just too familiar to them. And they failed to see him for who he truly was. And sometimes things can become too familiar to us to where we fail to see the blessing. And that's human nature. Human nature is... Familiarity breeds contempt. There's nothing to do in Brownwood, Texas. This place is boring. Yet you get tourists that come here like, oh, you have a, a train museum. You have a, you have a splash pad, an aquatic center. We're here, we're bored. Teenagers in Orlando, Florida are saying, there's nothing to do in Orlando, Florida. You've got kids out in Anaheim, California saying, there's nothing to do in the L.A. area. You're like, but there's the beach, there's Disneyland, there's Hollywood, there's Universal Studios. Midwestern kids wait their entire lives to take their senior trip out there to see all that. Kids that live there, nah. why? Because it's familiar. And that's what happens to us in Jesus. And that's what happened to the people of Nazareth in Jesus. It's familiar. It's just what we do. We get into a routine. We need to get out of that routine. We need to reignite our faith in him and remember just how much he loves us and just how much power he has poured out in our lives and how blessed we are of that. So this morning I want us to look at the rejection by Nazareth. I want us to look at the preaching of repentance, and I want us to look at the love of Christ. So let's look at the rejection by Nazareth. In verse 2, And when the Sabbath day was come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many hearing him were astonished, saying, From whence hath this man these things? And what wisdom is this which is given unto him, that even such mighty works are wrought by his hands? They're not even denying that he's teaching with great authority. They're not denying that he has done wonderful works. Other passages in the Gospels, in the other Gospels, you read about this, and Jesus goes in and he reads a passage out of the book of Isaiah where he says that the 
spirit of the uh, that the uh, spirit of the Lord is upon me and has uh, anointed me to preach the gospel to the pure, to set at liberty the captives, to make the blind to see, and so on and so forth. And Jesus read that scripture, and he said, "Today this scripture is fulfilled in your ears." And they say, "Who do you think you are? Where does he get this wisdom? Where does he get this power? This is just a carpenter." He didn't, he didn't even go to trade school. He learned in his dad's shop. Who is this guy? But he's teaching with great authority. Scripture tells us that the testimony of the Pharisees, his opponents, admitted that he taught with great authority. He taught the Old Testament scriptures with great authority. When Jesus taught scripture, he didn't say, here's what I think this means. He didn't say, this might mean. He didn't say that so-and-so theologian from 200 years ago said that this means this. Now, Jesus taught, he goes, this is what this means. This is what this says. This is what the Word of God says. How could Jesus teach with such authority over the Scriptures? He wrote it. There was a, there was a star test in the state of Texas. There was an author who there was a star test question about a book she wrote, and she got the question wrong. And she's like, I think the star test might be wrong about this. You know, because she wrote the book. The author knows what the book means. The author knows the message she was trying to convey. In the scriptures, the author, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, knows the message that was being conveyed in the scriptures. That's why he was able to teach it with great authority. Y'all ever seen the Chronicles of Narnia? The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? When the, when the witch tries to quote the deep magic to uh, Aslan the Lion, he says... Don't quote the deep magic to me. I was there when it was written. He had authority. Jesus taught the scriptures with authority because he wrote the scriptures. And he is sitting here teaching, and he's sitting there. Uh, the rabbis, they sat to teach. That might be something we should carry over for the Baptist church. Get me a stool or something. No. Um, but he taught with this great authority. And instead of being blessed by the wisdom that he shared, by the teaching, because Jesus didn't go in there and say, hey, I'm the son of God, y'all got to give me all your stuff. He went in there and said, hey, I'm the son of God, and I'm about to set you free, and you are about to be liberated. You are about to be redeemed. The promises that God has made to our nation for hundreds of years are about to be fulfilled. He was preaching blessings. He was preaching blessings by authority, by his authority, by the authority of the scriptures. And instead of being blessed by that, they were offended. And they rejected it. Where does he get these ideas? Where does he get this power? Who does he think he is? Verse 3, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and of Judah and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. The reason... They questioned his authority and his wisdom was because he was familiar to them. They watched him grow up. He was from a common family. All right. Working class family from Nazareth, which was not a good neighborhood. Again, the, the, the saying was, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Can anything good come out of California? Can anything good come out of well, you, you pick a town you don't like. 
in Austin, they say, can anything good come out of Williamson County? In Williamson County, they say, can anything good come out of Travis County? All right? This is not the best neighborhood. Nazareth is not a good place to live. He's just one of us. He's familiar to them. They watched him grow up. He's from a common family. He was a carpenter. He was not a seminary-trained rabbi. Buddy, you just need to get back in your lane. This familiarity had bred contempt, and contempt bred rejection. Jesus was too familiar to him. Do we really appreciate Jesus for who he is? Or has he become too familiar to us? Leland, that's a ridiculous question. Yeah. Is it? Has, is Jesus the only begotten Son of God who lived among us as one of us? He humbled himself to become a common man in one of the time periods of, of human history that was the hardest time to be a common man. He lowered himself to that. He lived among us. He lived with our limitations. He bore our burdens. In other words, Jesus knows what it's like to have to wake up at 5 o'clock in the morning and go to work and work a 12-hour day and come home and pass out. He knows that. Jesus knows what it's like to deal with an upset customer. Because even though the Son of God created the plow, there are some people you just cannot please. Amen? Amen. He knows how to, he, he knows how to deal with one of them people. He knows our troubles. Jesus grew up in a province that was being invaded and subjugated by foreign military. He was... He grew up during a time when the Roman army just would come through there, take their stuff, take their bread, oppress their people, and there was no consequence, there was no retribution for that. Yeah. He knows what it's like to deal with injustice. Our sorrows, our heartbreaks, the Bible tells us he was tempted in all points like we are. Do we really appreciate that the Son of God took on our lives for us, lived our lives, walked a mile in our shoes, if I should borrow a phrase. Do we really appreciate that after doing all that, after paying his dues, after working as a common carpenter, dealing with people, dealing with the economic depression and the repression and the oppression of his day, that after dealing with all of that suffering, he went to the cross where he was treated cruelly. He was treated with such shame Man treated him more shamefully than any man was treated ever. And after dealing with the way man treated him, went to the cross and endured the wrath of God. Do we really appreciate this? Or when I start telling you about the gospel, when I start talking about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, you go, oh, here's the gospel again. Become too familiar? Pastor I was sitting under one time, he was preaching, and we're all sitting in the church pews, bored, and he's preaching, and we're like, trying to make it to 12. And then he tells a story about his son. And in his son's class, there was a kid that suffered from autism. 
And his son went and helped this little boy and pushed him on the swings every day and played with him in the playground and helped him with the schoolwork. And all of a sudden, everybody's like, oh, and everybody's all cute. He goes, that's wonderful. He said, but I just spent the last 15 minutes telling you about Jesus dying for your sins, and y'all were all falling asleep. <laughs> we tell stories about puppies, and it's, oh, that's cute. We talk about Jesus, and we fall asleep. Is that what's going on? I mean, I'm not getting on to y'all specifically. I'm just putting you on guard against these things that can creep into our lives. Do we really appreciate that he did all of this because he loves us? Or has Jesus become too familiar to us? Has he merely become the patron saint of our religious organization? A name that we throw around on Sundays. A magic word. If we just say it in Jesus' name, it'll happen. Has he become too familiar with us? The Bible tells us in verse 6 that he marveled because of their unbelief. Nazareth had a front row seat at the arrival of Christ. They saw Jesus teach and preach. They saw his miracles, yet they rejected him. And we have seen the Lord do mighty things. Have we not? We've seen the Lord heal. We've seen the Lord bring people back from the brink of death. We've seen the Lord work in people's lives. We've seen the Lord transform people. We have seen souls saved. Five souls saved this year mm -hmm. in this church. Amen. Five. I'm praying that God gives us another one before June is over. Yes. That way we can say we're averaging one a month. But I'm praying for one more this month. Yes. I think I'm not asking for enough. We've seen God work, haven't we? Amen. Let us not be guilty of taking the Lord for granted. Let us not be guilty of just falling into the routine and forgetting the love that he has for us. Mm -hmm. Brother Jim talked this morning during Sunday school about... about our consciences and how we tend to drift toward pharisaical mindsets of legalism of of rules and he talked about one way that we get there and one way we get there is by forcing somebody to accept something in academic or intellectual practice but their conscience is still against it and there's there's truth to that mm -hmm. but you know how else churches and christians wind up with pharisaical mindsets they forget the love of christ and they begin to think it's the lifestyle and the rules that please God. And it's not their faith in him and their love toward him. They forget that he loves them. They forget that he redeemed them. They forget that he continues to work in their lives, continues to transform them, continues to bring them closer to his presence by growing their faith. And they begin to think that it's up to them to grow their faith. They begin to think it's up to them to sanctify themselves. They begin to think that there's something they must do in order to earn God's favor, even though they have already accepted the free gift of salvation. They'll tell you about the grace of God. They'll give you the academic definition of the grace of God. They'll talk to you about how God loves you, but they live as if they've still got to earn their seat at the table because they forget the love of God. It becomes an academic exercise. Let's not do that. Mm 
Let's not forget the love of God. And so we have the rejection at Nazareth, the rejection, because it became too familiar. It became too routine. The power was forgotten. Let's not forget the power of God here. As we grow, and we will grow, as we grow, we're going to see different people, different backgrounds, different belief systems. We are going to see different ideas that are brought in. Do not be afraid of those ideas. I'm not saying embrace them. I'm not saying compromise. But we need to know why we believe what we believe. And to do that, we need to be in the scriptures. And to be able to strengthen that belief and to strengthen our faith, we've got to be able to talk about these issues. What happens in a lot of churches is that we don't talk about them. We don't bring them up. We, if, if it's brought up, oh, no, no, that's heresy, don't, no, don't talk about that, then we never, we never learn. We never learn why we believe what we believe. The church professes the doctrine the pastor tells them they're supposed to believe. And they can't defend it. They can't explain it. They can't explore it. Because they're afraid of being labeled a heretic. Why? Because we forgot the love of God. God loves his children and wants his children to learn. He wants his children to have to be planted by the rivers of water, their own roots in the soil. So we've got to be able to talk about it. That's why, you know, you may remember a couple of years ago, we talked a lot about Calvinism. Because we need to understand. You know, it's not that I'm trying to root a Calvinist out. I think there's a secret one here. If I talk about it enough, he'll confess. No. I want us to understand what grace is. I want us to understand what depravity is. I want us to understand our inabilities, but our responsibilities. I want us to understand God's love but also his willingness to give free will. It all goes together. How does it fit together? We can't learn it if we won't talk about it with each other. See, the Bible says there is no love and fear. No, there is no, well, there is no love and fear. But there is no fear in love. If we're afraid, we're afraid the pastor's going to come down on us. We're afraid the deacon's going to come down on us. I'm afraid to talk to you about something because I'm afraid I'll get fired if I mention it. That's not love. That's how churches operate. Pastor tells them, you've got to believe these doctrines or else. You're not doctrinally pure and we can't have you here. Let me tell you, doctrinally pure churches are dying churches. That's being recorded. It's going to go on the internet. Somebody's going to find that statement, take it out of context, and I'm going to be in trouble. But a church... You can't sit here and expect somebody to be 100% doctrinally pure the second they walk in the door. No. You will never reach anybody if that's your demand. You'll be like the Pharisees that Jesus said that they made salvation so hard to attain. And then once they attained the faith that the Pharisees demanded, they made them twice the child of the devil they were. Yeah. There's got to be room to grow. That's right. And how do we help people grow? We love them. We had a lady join up with us early on in our ministry. She told me she's a Methodist. She's a Methodist, and she's going to stay a Methodist. She has no interest in being a Baptist. But she believed in what we were doing and leading people to salvation and reaching out with the gospel and reaching out to people who other 
churches we're not reaching out to for whatever reason. And so she's going to help us. She would help us with Bible school. She would teach Sunday school. She, she ran her lessons by me to make sure that they didn't violate Baptist doctrine because she's a Methodist in the Baptist church, and she wants to make sure that she doesn't teach Baptist children to be Methodist. She's trying to be respectful, you see. She played our piano. She's going to be a Methodist. Some of my brethren back in East Texas would say that's pulpit affiliation. You ever heard that term? That's when you allow a heretical preacher to come preach to your congregation. You know, Moses let Jethro preach to Israel, right? And I'm not saying I want to practice pulpit affiliation. Don't read too far into this. But we had a Methodist playing piano and teaching our children Sunday school. And we loved her, and she loved us. We loved her deeply. We still love her deeply. Yes. And she still loves us deeply. And three years later, she comes to me and says, I want to be baptized. And when she left Brownwood, Texas, and moved back to her hometown... She left a Baptist. Amen. Could we have done that if we had demanded the doctrinal purity? If being a Baptist was so familiar to us that we just got to be good Baptists, we would have rejected somebody the Lord used to bless us and to bless this community in a mighty way. And we would have missed out on that love. That's what I'm talking about. When it becomes about the church, yes. we've lost. When it becomes about the ministry, we've lost. Yes. Because it's not about the church. It is not about the ministry. It is not about the programs. It is about honoring and glorifying our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And we honor and glorify him by sharing his love with everybody we come into contact with. And we allow him to work in their lives and bring them to repentance. And we're there to minister the word to them every step of the way. Do not lose sight of that. Because to make it about the church, the denomination, the ministry, the whatever it is, when the shift goes from Jesus to us, we're now guilty of the same unbelief the people at Nazareth had. I was reading a book, uh, The Ragamuffin Gospel, by Brennan Manning, and he referenced another novel that was written some four or five hundred years ago, and I can't remember the name of it, and I can't say the guy's name that wrote it. But it was about the church, and Jesus came back to earth, and the church was unhappy because the return of Jesus was interrupting the church's business. We never want to be that way. We never want to be Nazareth. So do not reject the Lord. Well, I'd never reject the Lord Jesus. I'd never elect, reject the Lord. I'd never reject Jesus, Brother Leland. But when you make it about yourself, you make it about the church, you make it about the organization, you make it about the ministry, you make it about earthly things, you're rejecting the Lord. Let's not be Nazareth. Secondly, the preaching of repentance. In verse 7, And he called unto him the twelve and began to send them forth two by two and gave them power over unclean spirits. The Lord called his apostles. He called his apostles and said, come here, gather around. He then gave them instructions and he sent his apostles out. And not only did he send his apostles out, he empowered them. He gave them power to cast out devils. And likewise, the Lord has called us. Something else I heard this morning in Sunday school that I liked. That God called 
the members of this church. Amen. That God called people into the church. That he calls to salvation. Yes. Yes. That he calls people into our fellowship. The word church is translated from a Greek word, ekklesia, which means a called out assembly. Yes. There's a calling there. The Lord has called us. He called you to salvation. I didn't call you to salvation. Uh-uh. Whoever was your preacher at the time did not call you to salvation. No. God called you to salvation. He just happened to call your attention to a few words that were being said around you. But he called you to salvation. He also called us together as a church. And by being a part of this God-called church, you are following the calling of God on your life. Christ repeatedly told us in Scripture to preach the gospel to every creature, to preach the gospel to every person. And he called us together as a church in order to do that. He called you to salvation. Then he called you to be a member of this church. And you became a member of this church. And he is calling us together as this church to carry out his gospel. He has sent us into the world to preach his gospel. Josh took us to the responsive reading. And we went through the Great Commission. The to go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Teaching them to observe whatsoever things Christ has commanded us. He sent us in the world to teach and to preach that gospel. He did not send us into the world to preach and teach Life Point Baptist Church. It bothers me. And this is something that's just recently got my attention. It bothers me when I go on church social media pages. And there is nothing that those churches do with their social media pages than the car dealerships do with theirs than the appliance stores do with theirs, than the um, department stores and the clothing stores and Amazon and Netflix do with theirs. What are they all saying? Buy from us. Right? Buy from us. We've got this special. We're different because of this. Our service is better because we do this. You go to a car dealership, they've got the lowest prices and free oil changes for a year. You're about to buy a $20,000 car, and they're going to get you to buy it by offering you $80 worth of oil changes. Um, Free oil changes for a year. You go to this furniture store and buy from us. We'll deliver it the same day in 12 months, same as cash. Buy from this insurance agent because if you have a claim, he will personally walk you through the claims process. Go to this church because... Our worship services feel better than the other church's worship services. We have people your age. And they're cool just like you are. If you're 20, there's a bunch of cool young people. Go to this church just like you. If you're 60, there's a bunch of 60-year-olds that are just as annoyed at the young people as you are. Come to our church. We've got this vision when a pastor goes on and does a Facebook live video for 30 minutes explaining, I have a vision for a church that does this. Jesus has a vision for a church that proclaims his gospel. Amen. I'm not trying to be legalistic about this. I mean, there is a time to invite somebody to the Heather Smith concert. Don't get me wrong. But if you're scrolling through church websites and church social media accounts, and church YouTube pages, and all they're telling you about is their church. We've missed it. We've missed the mark. One thing I want to do with our online ministry, 
is we're proclaiming the gospel. We're proclaiming the love of God. Yes. We're teaching scripture. Yes. And the hope is that somebody is on Facebook, is on the internet, they find our teaching and God moves in their life. Yes. And if we're really having a great day, they may come visit with us. Yes. If we're having a really excellent day, they'll come visit with us and make a profession of faith. But if the online teaching does its job, somebody in Michigan can read it, receive the Lord as their Savior, God can guide them to a church up there and transform them, and we won't know it until we get to heaven. And that's an acceptable response. That's an acceptable result. Because we trust the Lord. Don't be Nazareth. And don't forget that our job here is to preach the gospel. Verse 12, and they went out and preached that all men should repent. That's the proper response to God's love. The proper response to the gospel is to repent, to turn to the Lord, and by doing so, turning away from sin and trusting him. We talked back in chapter 5 about the people that came to Jesus and they fell at his feet. That's repentance. Repentance is not a 12-step program with respect to AA. And I understand the healing that they lead people through. Repentance, if we're, gonna, if we're going to compare repentance to AA, you did repentance when they gave you the promise coin. Didn't know what that was, did you? To fall at the feet of Jesus and say, deliver me. That's repentance. You're turning from sin. You're trusting Jesus to save you. And Jesus will work in your life to transform the rest. Turn to the Lord. Turn away from sin. Trust him. To do anything else besides that is to spurn the love of God. To say, I don't want to hear the gospel, is to spurn God's love. To say, Jesus died for my sins, but I've got to change 15 things in my life to get my life straight first. That's to spurn the love of God. Don't do that. Mm-hmm. Repent. And that's what we're here to preach, to repent. See, God has called us to a special place. Yes. This is special. This fellowship we have, with you, you don't have this in every church. Maybe a lot of churches, I don't know, I don't get to visit many these days. But I can tell you from personal experience, it's not everywhere. Where else can a parent go to a congregation and say, I have a child that has completely gone left. And not be ostracized because, you know, the Bible says train up a child. You obviously didn't do that, brother. No, we love people that have problems with children, right? I've been through a divorce. I mean, I haven't, but suppose somebody comes through and says, I've been through a divorce. We, well, I went through, my, each of my parents had two. So in that regard. But somebody comes in and says, oh yeah, I've been through a divorce. We're going to say, oh wow. You know, you violated God's plan for marriage. You can't be around here. No. We understand that God redeems people from the problems and the failures that have happened in life. Yes. We understand that. Because we're a church with a purpose. We understand why we're here. Yes. And let us be that church of purpose. Yes. Let us have that purpose of sharing the love of God with everyone. Yes. By proclaiming the gospel. Showing how God redeems and transforms. And calling on people to come to the Lord. 
People may leave our church for a lot of reasons. You know, the preaching is lackluster. There's no flooring. They're not going to leave because they didn't feel God's love here. That's right. That's right. Finally, let's talk about God's love. Verse 13. And they cast out many devils and anointed with oil many that were sick and healed them. The casting out of devils, remember the Lord gave them that power. The Lord gave them the power to cast out the devils. And the anointing with oil was the application of medication. You see, he didn't have Medicaid and Medicare and health insurance and a doctor's office on every corner there. There was a legitimate need for medical help, and they were able to apply medication. And what they were doing was they were showing compassion. They were showing love. And why were they showing this compassion, this love? Because that's the love that Jesus had for the people. The Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 9 that Jesus looked out on the multitude and he saw the people as sheep scattered without a shepherd. And he had compassion. He was moved with compassion on them. Our Lord looks at a sick and dying world and has compassion on it. And he wants to help. And our message is of redemption. But we also have compassion on the problems of this world as well. See, Jesus loves you. He empathizes with you. He's been through it. He's been through poverty. He's been through rejection. He's been through problems. He empathizes with you. This morning, I got a problem in my life. I've got a dear brother in Christ who has experienced a very similar occurrence. He has empathy for me. Some of y'all have had problems, and I've experienced those problems in my past. I have empathy for you. Empathy. That's an expression of love. It's not sympathy. Sympathy is, oh, that's so terrible what they're going through. Sympathy is throwing that little lifesaver floaty thing out into the water to a drowning victim. Empathy jumps in the water and grabs them and pulls them safely to shore. We have empathy. Jesus loves you. He empathizes with you. He feels your pain. And he heals you. His love for you, his redemption from, for you, is not separated from his concern for your well-being. Jesus is not looking at you and saying, oh, well, I know you're sick, but I saved your soul. That's all that counts. Now, he's worried about your illness, too. Yes. Uh, you know, I know your family's falling apart. But I saved your soul, so don't worry about it. That's not what Jesus is saying. No. And Jesus weeps with you during that as well. Amen. He feels your pain. He loves you. Yes. Likewise, we cannot fully love people the way Jesus loves people if we don't empathize with their physical problems and want to help. That's right. Love people. Help people. Pray for people. The Bible tells us, Love your neighbor as yourself. A Pharisee, a lawyer, he stands and goes, well, who is my neighbor? <laughs> you got to love lawyers. Can we get the legal definition of neighbor around here? Where is Black's Law Dictionary? Okay, Supreme Court case from, you know, defines neighbor. What did Jesus say about his neighbor? He told him the story of the Good Samaritan. Yes. Your neighbor is even those people that you don't want to live around, that you don't like. Yeah. Love your neighbor as yourself. Yes. And the golden rule comes out of that. 
whatsoever you would have people do unto you, do that to other people. But then Jesus in John chapter 13 raises it yet another level, doesn't he? He tells his disciples to love one another as I have loved you. Love. Jesus loves us. The Lord loves us. God loves us. Gave everything for us. He wants us to love each other the same way. He wants us to express that same love to each other. He wants us to love our neighbors the way he loves us. He wants our activity and our behavior in this world to reflect the love that he has for this world. Revelation chapter 2. First letter to the churches. Goes out to the church at Ephesus. And Jesus said that he knew their works. And they did some good works. Ephesus was a good, doctrinally strong, solid, fundamentally sound church. And that's a good thing. I'm not preaching against that. But what did Jesus tell them? I have one thing against you. And that's that you've left your first love. And theologians get together and they say, what was the first love? And who is my neighbor? <laughs> who is their first love? Jesus. Yes. They, ha- they were doing services right. They had the right scriptures. They had the right doctrine. The apostle John was their pastor. At least till they put him on the Isle of Patmos. Right? The apostle Paul started that church. They had some of the best Bible teachers that walked the planet in the history of mankind. They had it going on. They forgot how God loved them, how Jesus loved them, and how therefore they should love one another. Seven churches of Asia. God makes some pretty strong threats against those seven churches on how he's going to correct them. He only threatened to take one of their candlesticks. And the one candlestick he threatened to take was the church at Ephesus how important this is to God we've got a y'all are a good loving group of people you know some of the people we've had visit our church lately as far as you know some of the ministers we've had come through here and visit they can't wait to come back Um, y'all have just I mean I'm not trying to talk myself into a raise here because we can't afford it but but I'm being serious. I want to encourage y'all that I have never in 41 years on this planet being raised in church, I have never seen a church love like Life Point Baptist Church. And I'm not campaigning for anything here now. I've already got the job. I have never seen anybody love like y'all love. The tragedy to me would be if we ever lost that. Don't lose it. Nazareth rejected Jesus because they couldn't see the spiritual of what was happening. They missed out on the gospel of Christ. They missed out on the love of Christ. You don't want to be Nazareth. Never forget God's love for you. Never forget the grace that he has shed in your life. 
When he says, my grace is sufficient for thee, what he means is, go back and remember how much I've loved you up until this point. Amen. Remember the things we talk about from Romans 1.16, that I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Amen. God loves you. Amen. He loves me. He loves us. Let's love each other. Yes. And as long as we do that, we will continue to see the miracles that God pours out in our lives. Amen. Let us stand.